0: Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book but also the podcasts stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time.
1: If By the said- way, I'm a, yeah, I'm ahead. a huge fan of your podcast. I've been listening to it for a very long time. It's, oh, great, great. Uh, so I'm just, I'm delighted beyond words to be on this podcast. Well, and let me
0: say that you, um, you know, consider ourselves recording. Let me say that you are the first person that I have brought the show back for in about a year and a half. I've always Mm -hmm. said that if uh, somebody approached me, that was interesting enough and you've been involved, you've had a finger in everything. So you Mm -hmm. definitely qualify. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, you're back. Yeah. Um, we're you're coming to promote a book. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mention that right now, but then we'll circle back to it at the end. It's called, um, from startup to exit An insider's guide to launching and scaling your tech business. I highly recommend it, and I'm going to tell y'all why at the end. Um, but um, Sharish, let's let's start with the fact that you joined Microsoft in 1987, mm-hmm. um, which is one year after the Microsoft IPO. This is way before the web. Um, this is way before Windows. Uh, Microsoft is basically an MS DOS company. So, how old are you when you join? And and you know what what was Microsoft like in 1987?
1: Yeah, so I was uh, 26 when I joined uh, Microsoft. I was fresh out of uh, business school at that point. And um, Microsoft probably had about a 1,000 employees at that point, so it was still uh, a small company. Um, And what was incredible was that uh, as a young graduate, I was given the responsibility of product managing uh, the Microsoft's entry into the email space. And this was a time when email did not really exist. Uh, but there were very few companies. I remember Boeing here in Seattle was one of them, and they were using a mainframe system called IBM Profs. Many people probably never heard of IBM Profs. And I remember going to meet with uh, Boeing to see uh, what the requirements were, uh, and it was quite daunting, uh, because you know, they, they, they thought you know a PC-based email solution, I mean, no way that could scale up to our needs of you know, 100,000 employees. So um, it was an exciting time uh, to be at Microsoft, because you were given this responsibility at a very young uh, age to really manage the entry of Microsoft into a whole new category.
0: Well, and I think uh, we should share a little bit of context here. Again, this is 1987. The web doesn't really start to take off till 93, 94. Um, So when we're talking about email in 1987, we're talking about largely intranets, largely corporate mail systems and things like that. This is not getting your mom a Hotmail account yet. This is something entirely different. This This is very much an enterprise thing, right?
1: Uh, yes, uh, definitely. And again, it was uh, you know companies using you know systems like IBM Profs and DEC uh, all in one, etc. I would say that uh, one of the challenges we had was that a lot of companies didn't even have local area networks, mm. you know, to run email software. So we were that early in terms of how um, email was being adopted by corporations. But it was clear, you know, at that time we had an internal system called Xenix Mail that we were using at Microsoft. And it was uh, clear that uh, email was the lifeblood of the company and that it was only a matter of time before email would get popular among all kinds of companies of all kinds of sizes. So you're involved in the
0: the launch of Microsoft Mail. Um, there's a bunch of acquisitions that go into the, to making that product. But I think, um, like, the, was, was the big, product there the the microsoft mail for pc networks i think that comes in
1: 91. that's right yes yeah um first launched on the macintosh uh Mm -hmm. which was called microsoft mail for apple talk networks and then we launched uh, we bought a company called network courier out of canada and that became microsoft mail for pc networks and then we started working on what became ultimately the microsoft exchange server which launched in more like i think in 95 time frame
0: the, um, again, for context, like, you know, um, Macintosh, Apple was very big on networking at the time, sooner than other people as a, as a way to try to differentiate themselves. Um, the, um, and, and it's Microsoft Mail for PC Network. So w- when that launched, was that a Windows product at that point? Because uh, uh, at this point, Windows is overtaking DOS. Windows 3.1, I think, is out by then, right?
1: Yeah, we had a Windows, uh, as we call it, a Windows Client. Uh, In in addition to MS-DOS and Apple, uh, Mac uh, clients that were available for Microsoft Mail for PC networks. Yes. Um, That was was key for, that was critical for Microsoft to have a Windows client.
0: Are you, um, can you give me any background or color? Do you remember when things like what was originally called the information superhighway, or what what did Bill call it, um, information at your fingertips or something like that. He had a different information on your
1: your fingertips. Yes, right.
0: He had a different acronym for it. Um, But generally, the coming of what we would now call the Internet era, um, there was the famous Tidal Wave memo, but there was all sorts of agitation before that. Give me a little background in terms of Microsoft getting religion about the Web and the Internet.
1: Yeah, so uh, initially uh, you may recall, you know, you had um, AOL and CompuServe and other systems, uh, which were proprietary systems. Ultimately, of course, AOL provided access to the internet. And then Microsoft uh, launched uh, MSN, uh, really as a, originally as a proprietary online service to compete with AOL. And I think we did that for about you know, two years and realized that the internet was really taking over. And so I was brought in as part of a new team to re-engineer Microsoft's uh, efforts into the free web, and that led to um, our acquisition of Hotmail. I also did the uh, you know the deal with Inktomi, which was the Google of its days, uh, to uh, you know provide Microsoft entry into the search business. Well, let's well, well we're going to come
0: to all that uh, yeah. individually. Um, So essentially, and again, if you were alive for this, you remember this clearly, but if you weren't there for it, um, at first Microsoft, uh, essentially, once you go toe-to-toe with AOL, create uh, MSN as a um, a dial-up proprietary system, uh, the original uh, walled garden sort of system. And then when it's clear that the web is, taking off and you don't need proprietary networks, then MSN is um, reconfigured to be what would later be called a portal. So tell me about I'm thinking about these teams and the hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even billions of dollars that Microsoft poured into MSN, Microsoft Network, when it was a proprietary dial up service versus throwing that all out and going the portal route. Was that a was that a hard, uh, bloody pivot? Was that a, a, um, a, a transition that people had to fight for? Give me a little bit of background on that.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say it was a bloody pivot. In fact, uh, in addition to spending hundreds of millions of dollars on MSN, the proprietary network, we also spent uh, more probably more like a billion dollars on uh, internet TV, if you remember that. right? right? right, that, right, right. that was the major effort that uh, Microsoft and that that whole effort went to you know waste, uh, unfortunately. So, uh, you know, I, when when Bill Gates wrote that famous internet title, uh, wave memo, uh, it became very clear that the internet was going to take over. So, I think uh, it it was not a controversial decision internally within Microsoft to uh, to do something on the on the free web um, as opposed to you know proprietary system. Um, yeah. But, but-
0: when people make fun of Google now for their moonshots and, and, yeah. you know, some people would say wasting billions of dollars to try to, you know, give you s- satellite from balloons and things like that. Um, Microsoft spent the first half of the nineties and, and into the two thousands, trying to f- see what the next platform for computing would be. They knew it would be interactive computing in some fashion. Yes. Um, it's just that no one really, it's like that, that, analogy of looking at the elephant. No one knows you know, what part of the elephant you're looking at. Um, so um, when, when MSN becomes a portal, um, what is the strategy there? Is this a, an attempt to, um, to out Yahoo Yahoo? Um, is it to be a home on the web? Is this supposed to be the all-encompassing home on the web for everything Microsoft? What's the vision for MSN at the beginning?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, you know, at that time, Yahoo, Excite, Infoseek, they're all trying to become, then they all started off as search engines. And they, if you recall, became, then became web portals providing access to a number of, uh, you know, services like Yahoo Finance, Yahoo Travel, etc. So we had a similar uh, vision uh, at MSN that uh, we would create a portal to our portal, uh, Yahoo and others. And that, you know, we had a number of properties that we were working on, you know, like um, Expedia, uh, Sidewalk, if you recall that, you know, was a, you -hmm. know, uh, Yellow Pages type of service. Uh, Carpoint uh, was another, you know, service, et cetera. So uh, the goal was to create a personalized, uh, you know, web portal where you could uh, access your email, you know, you could, uh, you know, conduct your internet search, and then access a variety of services that we would provide like Expedia for travel and, you know, uh, CarPoint, et cetera, for car information. Um, so that was the overall vision at that point.
0: Or, or maps and, and things like that. It, yeah. You know, yeah. I've said before that all of your basic stock apps uh, that come with your smartphone now are, mm-hmm. were, are sort of tools that, that the, the, um, the portals sort of all had because the idea was you wanted, you wanted people to come back to the portal on a daily basis. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's things like sports head, sports scores, headlines, weather, maps, all these things. Yeah. But um, and this will lead us into hotmail. I mean, what is more utilitarian that will cause people to come back on a daily basis? Then that's where their email lives. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and so one more thing of context, <laughs> This is an era of I think we're into like 1996, where it's hard to get an email address because you either get your email address from your service like an AOL or a prodigy or from your work or from your college or something like that. So the idea that an email address would be free and accessible from a web page so you could access it anywhere you had access to the internet um, was completely revolutionary and probably the stickiest thing that you could come up with for these portals, right?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the uh, Hotmail really was the first SaaS service of its kind uh, at that time. So the idea of taking something that originally required a client application that sat on your desktop uh, to access your email, but now being able to access that from the web, Get it for free. Get an email address. Be able to access it from any location just with a web browser was totally revolution- revolutionary at that point, and that's the reason you know why we decided to you know go after Hotmail and ultimately make that acquisition. Can you? Um, I know
0: that you weren't around for this, but um, can you give me some of the background just for um, the audience right now of? Hotmail as um, an enterprise and how it was launched and that sort of thing. I think the famous story is, is that the founders, when they had the idea, thought it was so bla- blazingly obvious to them that they like, tried to keep it a secret. They would like uh, approach VCs and pitch something else. And then if they liked the VC, they'd tell them the real idea, which was Hotmail. Give me a little bit of background on the, the Hotmail story.
1: Uh, The the two founders, uh, you know, uh, 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 Sabir Bhatia and Jack, I forget his last name, uh, were the two, you know, they're pretty young uh, folks, uh, young folks who uh, built the Hotmail uh, concept. Um, I don't have the the original founding story as you outlined it. uh, But what I do know is that uh, they, you know, they got traction immediately and they were Adding By the time we spoke to them, in, in uh, I remember in, in September of 1997, they were adding about a million users a month. And one of the biggest challenges that they had was, uh, uh, was being able to scale their solution so that it could handle that kind of load. And they literally had to re, you know, re-architect the solution twice, uh, sort of like changing the wheels of your car while it was running, uh, but they managed to do it and and, uh, keep it running.
0: Well, one thing that we should poke at a little bit is, you know, the idea of something going viral or a product having viral growth Mm -hmm. is something that seems, you know, almost second nature um, in Mm -hmm. 2021. Um, Hotmail was, there's no way that they were the first to create, you know, a viral hit product, but um, they were very early in having a product like that. And one of the thing, one of the reasons, the main reason was because it was a product where the product evangelized itself by someone using it, because you get a Hotmail account, you send an email to your friend. And at the bottom of that email, it says, you know, I can't remember, um, uh, sent via Hotmail, the, the free web email. No, I, I, I think web. it said,
1: uh, Get your free email at hot, you know, www.hotmail.com.
0: Exactly. So, in a world where um, uh, email addresses are scarce, are, are commodities that you can't just grab anywhere, um, the very fact of people adopting it sort of, you know, spread, you know, textbook virally. Um, and and I feel like that that is a lesson. That very basic lesson is something that all sorts of companies have you know evolved over the years everything from you know social media startups to to web apps and things like that um where it is the you, you your user base sort of becomes the the your marketing team essentially or the product does i guess mm-hmm. is a way to look at it mm-hmm. um and and so you know you mentioned a million users a month or something but um again this is in 1996-97 no one knows how to handle uh, a product taking off at, at that sort of scale, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the whole concept of viral marketing uh, was uh, popularized by uh, Draper uh, of the draper uh, you know, fame, and he was the one, I believe, who uh, convinced the Hotmail founders to put that tagline at the end of each, each email, which is now commonplace now for every uh, email application. Uh, but that was a revolutionary idea, and and really helped uh, you know Hotmail grow tremendously at that time.
0: So, uh, tell me about the actual deal with Hotmail. Um, this is early. If we're even in '97, it's hard to remember now how compressed the real mania of the dot-com bubble was. But you know, a four hundred million dollar deal. In late 1997 was a huge deal, and people. I'm sure the headlines at the time were screaming, but they don't make any money, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about a why you guys wanted Hotmail, and then b sort of the thinking that went into the deal, and and and, and c um, how you convinced uh, the Hotmail folks to to sell to you.
1: Yeah. So, the, as you pointed out uh, before, uh, email is a very sticky application, and uh, Email is an uh, application that you use on a daily basis. And, and so we felt it was really important for us to have uh, email as part of our uh, web portal so that you know one, we could capitalize on the growth that Hotmail was experiencing, but also that it would bring people back to our portal to check their, check their email. Um, what was interesting was that when we uh, uh, started discussing the potential for acquisition with Hotmail, the founders were interested in, in selling, uh, but the VCs were not interested in selling. Mm. And uh, I remember you know, when we met with them, the founders literally had to uh, go back you know, to, uh, to the back room and have a separate meeting with their VCs to really convince them that it, they would be better off being acquired by Microsoft. Because at that time, as you recall, there were a lot of IPOs happening and the VCs thought that they could get a billion dollar you know, IPO with Hotmail. Uh, but uh, I think the uh, Hotmail founders were smart. Um, they knew that uh, they could get a good price from Microsoft um, and the Microsoft stock was something that would retain its value because even if they went IPO, who knows uh, what would happen in the future, right? Might go IPO for a billion dollars and end up at hundred million dollar value you know, uh, you know six months after the ipo so they were really smart in saying hey let's you know microsoft stock has a lot of currencies growing very fast as well and let's go do the uh, microsoft acquisition so we didn't really have to convince the hotmail founders uh, we had to of course agree on a you know price that they thought was reasonable um, uh, but we had, they had to convince their vcs to really let them sell the company uh, and there was a big gap also between uh, what you know, we wanted to uh, acquire the company for and what they wanted to pay. Um, you know, our original uh, range was in the 150 to 200 million. And this, there's a story uh, which uh, I was told by Sabir Bhatia was that they created a response and they faxed it back to us saying, you know, we are worth X. And and the last moment, as the last page was with the final price that they wanted was going through the fax machine. They pulled it out, and they changed that number, uh, and they changed that number to seven hundred million. Was their asking price? Uh, and of course, uh, after much negotiation, we ended up with four hundred million, which was still an amazing price for a company that was barely generating any revenue
0: splitting the difference uh, a little bit but <laughs> yes um, was was there other folks um, bidding for hotmail at the time because I think I've spoken to is it the rocket mail that became mm-hmm. part of Yahoo Mail and then I've spoken to folks that again, uh, at this time the portals are all putting together their utility belts. so I've spoken to people that had calendar startups and and other things like that, um, stock stock quote startups and things like that. Um, so, was there competition, or did you swoop in before uh, the things got heated?
1: No, that's a very interesting question. So, there was not uh, any competition for Hotmail. Uh, what did happen was that Yahoo acquired uh, Rocket Mail, uh, which was a, a follower to Hotmail uh, before we made our move on um, on Hotmail, uh, and they, I think, they purchased it for like hundred ten million. And uh, they had, uh, um, I think, nine hundred thousand users or something to that effect. Whereas Hotmail had about eight million users, uh, and that immediately set the price for Hotmail. Uh, so that immediately made that whole acquisition for us a lot more expensive because the Hotmail guys could say, "Hey, you know, Rocketmail was just acquired by by Yahoo for this price, and they have far fewer users than we do. And if you calculate a per user price." then we should be you know, worth X. Um, so it made, immediately made the acquisition for you know, of Hotmail a lot more expensive for us. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The
0: more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder.
1: VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills.
0: Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the
1: smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash impact. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
0: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that
1: they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
0: Um, I'm going to skip ahead in your career, but we 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 did miss that you were involved in the launch of Microsoft Visual C plus um, plus. Mm. You know, so you were very uh, involved in, you know, uh, Windows development tools and things like that. But let me let me skip ahead in the interest of time to. Um, sure. You, you, you go the startup route yourself with Team um, On Systems, right? Yes. And so this is, again, uh, web based email, but um, more of an enterprise sort of product?
1: Yeah. I mean, so uh, you know, I had clearly developed a significant amount of email expertise uh, while I was at Microsoft. And I was blown away by the simplicity of uh, Hotmail. Uh, And at that time, uh, Microsoft had uh, something called Exchange Server, uh, which was their client uh, server-based email system. But the challenge with Exchange was that you had to have system administrators to set it up, to manage all the servers, to upgrade it, to back it up, all of that cost. And I felt that that was too expensive for small to mid-sized companies. And so I said, hey, if, if Hotmail was successful, as a web-based consumer email service, why not create a enterprise-grade or business-scale uh, you know, uh, email service with calendaring and scheduling along with that so that it could meet the needs of uh, small to mid-sized companies, provide this, the same kind of functionality that Exchange did, but without any of the hassles of upgrading, you know, backing up, et cetera, uh, of their system. So again, it was one of the first Business SaaS uh, uh, products out there, and we launched, in fact, at the same time uh, at uh, uh, you know at SD uh, the event uh, as um, as uh, you know uh, some of the other SaaS you know uh, you know services at that time. What year is this? This was in nineteen ninety nine. Mm. So um,
0: this is right when. Palm pilots are taking off when yes. things like so. You, it's essentially um, you sort of pivot a little bit to um, allowing sort of mobile access to like email That's systems right. and calendars and things like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this was when uh, BlackBerry was getting started. They had a you know couple of hundred thousand BlackBerry users, and then phones, uh, you know, commodity phones were becoming internet enabled uh, with something called GPRS, you may recall that uh, very slow connection, and you had these uh, special purpose browsers called WAP uh, browsers that allowed you to access the internet from your phone. And so we felt that given that email had become ubiquitous, that, uh, you know, uh, instead of, you know, purchasing an expensive device like Blackberry, Uh, Why not enable phones to access their, you know, to allow users with phones to access their existing email accounts? And uh, our engineering team uh, did a great job of um, reverse engineering all the proprietary email systems out there, including AOL, Hotmail, uh, you know, Microsoft Exchange, uh, Lotus Notes. Uh, We could all access that uh, through our system.
0: When, When were you acquired by BlackBerry? What year was that? It was in 2002. 2002. Because, yeah. okay, again, I feel like BlackBerry is one of those companies that risks going down the memory hole in terms of how important it was and how huge it was at the time. But the yeah. idea of getting your email um, uh, when you're out, on, out in the field, out on the road or whatever, like yeah. that's, that's what made BlackBerry BlackBerry. So yeah. um, your systems are essentially what became BlackBerry Internet Email.
1: Yeah, so BlackBerry had two email systems. Uh, one was the original corporate email system that allowed you to access your exchange uh, Lotus Notes email. Uh, but uh, when they started selling through wireless carriers like T-Mobile and uh, Singular at that time and Verizon, uh, they were saying, hey, there's a class of users called prosumers. These are the business folks who uh, you know, have you know, small businesses, uh, and they don't use Exchange or Lotus nose. They, they use uh, POP email, or they use uh, AOL, or they use, uh, you know, some of these other email systems. And we want access, we want to enable those users to access the existing email accounts. And BlackBerry did not have a solution for that. And so they, that's why they acquired uh, T-mon Systems. And the technology we built became known as BlackBerry Internet Email. And in fact, at at one point, there were more BlackBerry Internet email users than their corporate email system.
0: Right. We're talking about like 50 million um, when there's probably only a couple hundred million, um, you know, uh, remote, uh, you know, cellular based Internet uh, users in the whole world at that point. Yeah. Um, I I think you leave BlackBerry before the iPhone comes out, right?
1: Yes, well before that, well
0: before okay. that. Yeah, do, yeah. do you do you have any do you have any memory in terms of uh, when the iPhone comes out um, from from friends back at BlackBerry, what their reaction was, or or what the even the industry or your personal reaction to you know um, the idea that the internet is mobile is so fundamental now, mm-hmm. um, but it 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 kind of took the iPhone to make it. Um, make sense to again folks like my mom, so mm-hmm. do you remember that, that moment in time when seeing the iPhone and seeing that next couple of years when the mobile web and internet really took off?
1: yeah I can I can certainly describe my reaction. I can probably describe the reaction of of REM. Uh, you know I was blown away by the iPhone in terms of the touch interface and the fact that they had done such an incredible job of building uh, an easy to use uh, device that not only allowed you to access email but also you know the web and so forth. But I can tell you, uh, at at Rim, their reaction was: this is never going to be successful. Who in the world would want to type on a glass piece of glass? Uh, and the battery life on this is going to be dismal. Uh, there's something that you know the Rim folks were very proud about. BlackBerry was the fact that it provided tremendous battery life. Because it was so, uh, you know, uh, Spartan in its usage of, uh, of uh, you know, battery and and so forth. So they, I'm sure, they basically thought that they had such a big lead, they had a great product uh, that this was just going to be a fad and and would not succeed as a as a as a device. So that was unfortunately <laughs> had the wrong conclusion as they found out a few la- few years later. When the, when the iPhone and Android phones really took over
0: um, Sharish let's uh, s- stipulate that um, you, you've done other startups um, you've, you've been on all sides of the table in terms of um, you know acquiring companies um, selling companies um, having companies not be successful and, mm-hmm. and go under um, you've been heavily involved with the Seattle startup ecosystem mm-hmm. Um so, can you let's get to the book? What was the impetus to write um, From Startup to Exit an insider's guide to launching and scaling your tech
1: business? Well, uh, I would say I have somewhat of an idealistic uh, vision uh, around that. Um, uh, you may have heard of the statistics that nine out of 10 startups fail. But the one startup that succeeds, boy, they change the world, right? Um, and if, in fact, if you look at the top ten companies in the world by market, you know, capitalization, nine of them are, you know, are software companies like, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, etc. Um, so they have a tremendous impact on the economy. So my hope is that if I can change that equation even a little bit, so that one more company succeeds, one more founder succeeds and creates a big company, uh, then I can have, you know, in in some small way, uh, a significant impact on the uh, startup ecosystem, significant impact on the economy. Uh, So my goal is to really help inspire founders and and then make them successful, help them avoid the mistakes that I made. Let me um...
0: I am not blowing smoke because I read every tech book that comes out and I've had um, an advanced copy of your book for about a month now. And I would say that this is maybe the most comprehensive, this is almost like a primer or a textbook. I I know that I've worked with publishers before and they're like, never say textbook because it it sounds, (laughs) they feel like it'll scare people away. But I feel like this is the most detailed step-by-step. Other books are like, well, here's how to negotiate Rounds with VCs. Here's how to find product market fit. Not only do you go into okay, well, wait, stop. What does product market fit actually mean? Like that's a, a buzzword. What is what does it mean? What does it look like? You, you go into how to split founder equity, how to recruit great employees, but you even do things like you stop and you're like, you know, have you heard basic terms like lifetime value or CAC? Here's what these again, terms mean, and here's what they mean to your product, to your startup, to your business. Um, I just have to tell you that I don't think, I think this is the best book in terms of comprehensively, step-by-step, gi- giving a startup primer holistically.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate that feedback. That was, that was the idea, right? That this would be something that would really not only get founders up to speed and some of the key issues that they'll face uh, but also serve as a reference you know that they can go back time and time again as they make the journey through theirs you know through the startup um,
0: I would say not only founders but you know if, if you're interested in the tech industry um, again and you hear these buzzwords that people use or you're like I don't understand what it means to a company raised a series C or something like that. you know what I mean Like, even if you're not a founder, I think that the way the modern world is, like, this is an excellent book that will give you that sort of grounding and background in in how these things work. Mm -hmm. If you, but it is aimed, as you said, at at founders and startups and things like that. If you had one um, lesson from the book that you would hope that that founders would take away um, in terms of having a successful company, hopefully, um, what would it be?
1: Uh, I, I would say that uh, it's really to focus uh, you know, uh, hard on how to achieve you know, product market fit and really testing whether the idea you know, has merit and developing an understanding of what are the channels of distribution you will need, what will it cost for you to acquire customers. Really spending time on that, I think, will serve people really well. And that's what I talk about extensively in the book.
0: Well, again, the book is um, From Startup to Exit, an insider's guide to launching and scaling your tech business. And again, it's not just <laughs> it is it is a roadmap where at all stages, OK, now we need to hire. OK, now we need, as you say, to, to really scale and acquire customers. And, and it's just such a great guide for the, the the basic nuts and bolts of what that actually means. Um, Sharice, thanks for coming on um, the Internet History Podcast. Um, I encourage everyone to get the book. And and thanks for uh, sharing your stories with us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Great to be here.